Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. In this session, we'll discuss how Australia's Indigenous and settler histories are recognised and confronted in cultural heritage conversation and urban planning practice. We'll hear from Stephen Gapps, the Senior Associate Historian from Artifact Heritage Services, Seth Diaz, PhD candidate at the UCID School of Architecture, Design and Planning, Jess Herder, the Senior Associate at Thiriwiri, and Inez Hoa. But let's start with Nicole Gurren as she introduces our Chair, Dr. Michael Mossman, the Associate Dean of Indigenous Strategy and Services at the University of Sydney. Before we go any further today, of course, I want to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we're here today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and it's on their beautiful country, of course, that the University of Sydney's campuses are built, and it's also where I'm privileged to live myself as well. And while I am acknowledging country, which is a very appropriate thing to do, of course, particularly with this event, I'd also like to recognise the owners of Bundjalung country, where I grew up in, um, in the northern rivers of New South Wales. Um, it's been going through a lot lately in that beautiful country, and I'm very pleased that we'll be holding an event there as part of the Festival of Urbanism on Monday with the uh, Living Lab Northern Rivers. In paying my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, I want to thank all of the um, First Nations leaders who've been working tirelessly and at great personal, co um, personal cost at the moment in this lead up to the referendum on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. I'm very pleased to say that a number of schools here at the University of Sydney, including the Sydney Law School and my own school, Architecture, Design and Planning, have released statements with strong support for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. So this year's theme um, of contested urbanism really gets it the heart of some of the most difficult challenges that confront us, um, all of us actually, who care about cities and regions. And I can't think actually of a more contested topic than country. I've been a practising planner and researcher for more than 20 years and over those two decades we've gone from, you know, awkwardly perhaps beginning to acknowledge that this country's origin story didn't begin with colonisation, to starting to appreciate that many, if not all, of our assumptions about land tenure, about property, ownership, could and should be contested, along, of course, with our beliefs about cultural heritage and history, and how this history should be recognised and reflected in decisions about future development. And personally, I think we've probably used planning and property laws and processes as a way of even helping us not see. They've certainly legitimised um, many practices that I think in the future we are going to want to contest and change. They've helped us not see and confront very uncomfortable truths about past and, of course, ongoing injustices. And I think, in part, we've been reluctant to open up this conversation because we haven't known what to do about it. But, as the Uluru Statement from the Heart has laid clear, it's not actually for us, certainly not people like me, to know what to do but first to listen. And so we are absolutely privileged today to be able to listen to the speakers that we've got for you this afternoon. I'm going to hand over now to the chair of this session, Dr Michael Mossman, in a moment. But first, let me introduce him to you all. 
Dr Mossman is a Kuku Yulanji man from Cairns in far north Queensland who currently lives and works here on the country of the Gadigal people in Sydney. Michael's a lecturer, researcher and Associate Dean Indigenous at the University of Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning and his PhD was titled Third Space, Architecture and, Indi and Indigeneity. Dr Mossman is a registered architect and a First Nations design strategy consultant with over 20 years professional practice experience. He advocates country and First Nations issues in the architectural profession at educational practice and policy levels. And he has done this with great generosity through his leadership at the school and the university as well. Thank you very much, Michael. So thank you, Nicole, for your uh, introduction, the acknowledgement of country as part of this Festival of Urbanism 2023 and also to the Henry Halloran Trust, Research Trust. So yundu yalada, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Michael Mossman. I'm a Kukuyalanji man. And as Nicole already said, I am a lecturer and researcher um, and also the Associate Dean Indigenous at the School of Architecture, Design and Planning here at the University of Sydney. So I was born and raised in Cairns in far north Queensland, and that's the country of the Gimoy, Wallabara, Yidinji peoples. The place Cairns has an original name, Gimoy. And Gimoy is the slippery blue fig that's so prominent in that place. And it's certainly a place that, uh, like many others around the Australian continent, that's encountered and still deals with the narratives of the topic of this conversation, of this session called Contested Country, from the frontier wars to contemporary heritage, conservation, protest and settler memorials. So what does it all mean? Protests over environmental heritage, or loss of public housing, local communities feeling disempowered, recognition of custodianship of and sovereignty over country are narratives and contesting memorials with counter-narratives. There's certainly a lot to cover. And it's a privilege to be speaking with you today in my role as the chair of this session. And we have, of course, brilliant speakers. And these are representatives from a community of practitioners who have a broad range of lived experiences and scholarship in and around the topics. So joining us today to share thoughts are Stephen Gapps, uh, whose books, The Sydney Wars, 1788 to 1817, and Gujarat, The First Rajri War of Resistance, The Bathurst War of 1822, 1824, presents frontier wars for public recognition as Australia's first wars. So thank you, Stephen. Then we are joined by Ines Hoa, who's standing in today for Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who unfortunately is unable to join us today. And Inez will share thoughts on the histories of Waterloo and the planned redevelopment of the Endeavour estate. So thank you, Inez, for joining us at late notice. Um, then we'll be followed with Jess Herner, who's a Dungadi woman who grew up in Darawal country and now lives and works in Darak country. So Jess has over 30, uh, 20 years experience working with New South Wales government in natural and cultural heritage. So thank you, Jess, um, for joining us. Looking forward to your talk. And then we conclude our guest speakers with Seth Diaz, who's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. And his research focuses on spatial and urbanistic implications for First Nations protest in Sydney and the alteration of ways that practitioners in the built environment read the colonial fabric of the city. So thank you all for joining us. So please sit back and get comfortable or get uncomfortable and listen carefully to these voices, to these worldviews um, that'll be shared with you over the next 45 minutes. Thank you and Stephen, you will be our first speaker, so I'll hand the microphone over to you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, I'd also like to 
acknowledge the traditional owners of the Bamal and Badu, the unceded lands and waters that were gathered here today, uh, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. I wanted to bring up, I want to look at three case studies, I suppose you call them, of contested spaces, but how they might reson resonate in the present. Um, they're related to frontier wars uh, in the Sydney region, which I've done a bit of work on. The first one is obviously a map of Sydney Harbour. This is, um, was discovered recently, the, I, was at the, I worked at the National Maritime Museum as a curator and we were donated um, a book, a, a, book a, um, a log book from one of the officers of the First Fleet. And his diaries and journals are already in State Library 100 years ago, so important. But this log book had been sitting with the family for generations in England and they said, here, you can have it. Log books are boring. The tides, charts, distances, etc. But in this was some draft charts that Bradley had done that I'd never seen before. And when I looked closely, there were some names, place names on the map that I'd never seen before. And one of them was Bloody Point. And I thought, that's interesting. I've never seen that on a map of Sydney, early colonial map of Sydney before. So I did some investigation and of course, um, Bloody Point matches with uh, Iron Cove there and Dobroyd Point. Now, uh, you, might, you might know the Bay Run. That's, that's where the Bay Run is. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of historians in the past have seen this event which occurred in uh, 1788, the death of two rush cutters, convict rush cutters, must have occurred at Rush Cutters Bay. This nails it down to Bloody Point. At the time this was drafted in early 1788, mid-1788, um, this is where, in effect, what the first two recorded deaths of colonists at the hands of Aboriginal people occurred here at Dobroyd Point, just where UTS Rowers Club is today. You know, I, and this, I found this out a couple of years ago. Um, I think nothing's happened about this since, but it just makes you think, as an historian, it makes you think there is still information in the archives to discover, and that's what inspires me to continue bringing this, this up. And it inspires me that perhaps this can add to the way that we might see this space in the future. Now, the next example I wanted to bring up was, this is a, a map of Governor Macquarie's instigated 1816 campaigns across the Sydney region. Now, looking at that, when, when you start to map these things out, you start to see the extent. And this is the largest military campaign in the history of Sydney. You know, there was three major detachments and then other parties were sent out. Um, in particular, one, which is often disregarded, was sent to guard the Great Western Highway because the, the settlement at Bathurst was so critical to Macquarie's projected future of the colony. Um, but I guess what the point I wanted to make about this was a lot of this conflict that led up to these, these punitive campaigns, which le lead to the Appen Massacre of 1816 in April, which pr pretty much ends the, the conflict, the resistance across the Sydney region. A lot of the, the, um, the issues for the, for the colonists around this was that the mountains, the Blue Mountains, and down to the south, were, were what one colonist called an advantageous retreating ground. It was so annoying to these settlers that they could raid the, the farms along the Nepean River on the outskirts of the colony and they just retire across the river into the mountains. And what this makes me think of, as someone who's been bushwalking the Blue Mountains for years and knows it pretty well as a wilderness space and for someone like yourself, probably, who has a school-based history of how rugged and impassable those mountains were, it, this made me think of the mountains as a place of safety, as a place of refuge, rather than this harsh barrier that the settlers were trying to cross. So it really flips my thinking on, on the mountains that surround Sydney and their relationship to the Sydney Basin. And this is just, um, on that mapping front, this is just uh, the casualties in the, in, that occur. Once you start to put these down and map them out over time, you really start to see the extent 
of the conflict that has previously often been seen as desultory or small skirmishes and guerrilla warfare. But once you, once you map these things out, and I'm, re and I'm really looking forward to doing more of this, um, you start to see patterns. I'll just finish with the third case study, which is um, down south of Sydney at Appen, near where the massacre occurred. And you can see in this building, um, which is an outbuilding, a stone granary or outbuilding, you can see this window. And if you look closely, it's got the characteristics of a gun slot or a, a rifle's um, gun loop. Now, when, when I started do, doing some digging around in the Appen area, I found five examples of, of these sorts of windows in that, that location. Um, and one is at a historic homestead, and there's a 400-page conservation management plan on that homestead. And it's got two words about that, that window. Possibly defensive, question mark. And that's it. Now, these were built after 1816. We know that. But I guess what, what I'm trying to work out is were they built with this, this, this really significant conflict? I mean, the Battle of Razorback was an vict Aboriginal victory in 1816, before the massacre at, at Appen. Were they built with that memory, that settler memory of conflict? Often these kind of defense, domestic defensive architecture elements were all around the empire, the British Empire, and often they were multiple use. You know, they could have been for convicts, bushrangers, and we, but we shouldn't forget also against the resistance warfare of Aboriginal people. And yeah, there's, there's an inside view, and it's a classic rifle slit window. A lot of um, architectural historians say that, well, they're, they're Georgian decorative features, you know, military elements. <laughs> they're also quite handy if you're in trouble. Um, so, yeah, I thought uh, those three examples, and we got one minute. Well, I could finish early because I think that's really what I wanted to get across, that these, these three different case studies show in different ways this land that was contested and how we might be able to rethink it and to reevaluate that, that, those contests in the present. So thank you. Thank you, Stephen. That was amazing um, commentary there. I really appreciate that. I really wanted to, yeah, clarify, you know, just to see that sort of detail. It really does, you know, really brings to the fore what, um, you know, these sorts of actions that are taking place. I'll now um, ask Inez to please um, step up to the microphone. Thank you, Michael, and thanks, Stephen. That was hugely interesting. I know that um, uh, my colleague, Professor Bronwyn Carlson, was supposed to be here today, but she couldn't come, and I know she's hugely disappointed. Um, so thank you for having me. I'm the step-in, and um, I have 10 minutes, so this was quite difficult. Tēnei te mihiki te tangata whenua, te mana whenua, te whenua moe moe a, te hapu kerugu, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā rā koutou katoa. I begin um, by acknowledging in my language of Te Reo Māori, of um, Aotearoa New Zealand, uh, the indigenous language there, um, and I acknowledge the people of this land where we meet, and I do it in my language because indigenous language allow for indigenous worldviews to be expressed, and in just two sentences I'm able to express what I truly feel, um, and that is, um, in those two sentences I acknowledge the connection of Gadigal lands, peoples, skies, our waters more than human, ancestors and descendants, elders gone on, elders that are here now, and um, elders yet to arrive. And I acknowledge the different realms of Gadigal with, with my um, acknowledgement of Gadigal existence. And I recognise that Gadigal knowledges and spirits uh, remain and flow underneath all of these roads and buildings and sandstone buildings. Um, and I'm grateful to be here. And it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So when I was informed of the festival, oops, yesterday, <laughs> um, I was quite excited actually because um, my background research is, uh, uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Indigenous Studies and I'm a lecturer there, but um, uh, my research is um, Indigenous diaspora, and I was, it was good to hear that this was interdisciplinary because I was thinking, oh, it's going to be lots of 
heritage and, and planning. And, but anyway, I'll explain my story and my research now. So, um, and specifically, I'm looking at Māori in Australia because one of six Māori in Australia live here. That's a lot. It's a lot about culture. But in my master's research, I came across this little whare. And so when I was told about the festival and these ideas of contested country and what the statement can entail when we think about contests of ideas and values and especially when we think about whose voices are heard, who's are muted, and further, who is visible and whose presences are made invisible. So this little whare, or this little house, was the centrepiece of my uh, master's research, which led me down a research path of historical urban development, which I'm speaking today. It does have some relevance. It does have some relevance today, absolutely. So, but I'll go through the story first so that, so that you can see. Um, and some of you might know where this little house is. Those of you who are local to Usid or Gadigal country might recognise. But those of you who don't, if we pan out from here, we can see that it's in an urban area and sits next to a building. It's behind the little whare behind that tree called Tūranga. And if we pan out again, Tūranga is a ginormous building. You might recognise it now. The building Tūranga is a 29 floors of apartment housing. And if you pan out again, it's one of two buildings of the Twin Towers in Waterloo, which is just down the road here. Tūranga has a twin tower called Matavai, and they were both part of a housing project or estate um, called the Endeavour Project. And they were, construct uh, they were finished, uh, construction was finished in 1976. The little whare, the little Māori house I presented in the beginning, was part of a decorative theme uh, that was inscribed into the whole estate, into the Endeavour estate. I discuss... Um, the Endeavour State, because to me it, it, it's a place of layers where the voices of those who resided and lived there, those whose homes were made there, those who raised families there, I, I believe have never been listened to. And in the process, their voices and their presences have not only been ignored, but they have been muted and replaced with others. In this place and space in Waterloo, it starts with the invasion and colonisation of Gadigal country, a thriving peoples and lands that were near decimated by colonial expansion. Thousands of generations resided in this place prior to invasion. And then Waterloo and its surrounding areas of Redfern and South Sydney became a hub for Gadigal community who were forced off some of their lands in and around Warraine, or what we know, now know as Sydney Cove. And as industry, including the railway works, were established in Redfern by the, around about the 1960s, I know I'm taking a big jump, but... Um, Waterloo became a community of working families, immigrants, and a growing population of Indigenous peoples and families, diasporic Aboriginal mobs, joining their kin in this place. By the 1960s and 1970s, Redfern and Waterloo screamed its unwantedness by its appearance and its militant, radical black and impoverished res residents. There's a whole lot of other factors that are involved here, but and with the amalgamation of other political and social forces, by 1972, with no prior consultation or, or warning, the New South Wales Housing Commission sent Waterloo residents a proclamation stating that their homes had been gazetted for resumption and acquisition, which meant that everybody had to leave and they were raising their homes. In spite of protests, the Endeavour project went ahead and the estate was constructed. The Twin Towers were initially built to house elderly New South Wales residents and was designed as an enormous tribute to James Cook, as you can see here, which is not necessarily that unusual. Australia spent more than 250 years um, not just idolising the myth of Cook, but also the vessel that he came in. However, as I go on to explain, I, the, um, the estate was a whole other level of immortalisation and commemoration. The Twin Towers were 29 floors of apartments. Each floor had a common room for the residents to socialise and foster community. Each of these communal rooms were decorated with a place that Cook had been to. There were 58 floors between the two buildings that were featured in Cook's exploration and discoveries. And these are bolded in ast uh, with asterisks. All of these places are Indigenous lands global indigenous countries 
with global indigenous peoples attached to them. The New South Wales Housing Commission and its employees decorated each room with their visions and imaginations of all of these peoples and places. And just quickly, some of the um, New South Wales Housing Commission um, employees took leave from their day-to-day -day jobs to go and decorate these rooms. Yeah, so they made, for instance, for uh, in Quebec or some of the uh, places in what we now know as Canada, they erected totem poles and a whole heap of other imaginations. The Endeavour Estate is a site of contested countries, figuratively, metaphorically, symbolically and literally. It is a site of colonial imaginations of diverse global indigenous lands and their peoples, permanently inscribing these imaginations, stereotypes, misconceptions of indigeneity, all the while on Gadigal land. Gadigal peoples were invisibilised and replaced with imagined global indigenous identities. Voices were muted, Specific voices were remembered, commemorated, and idolised, while some voices were specifically and deliberately forgotten. My account of the Endeavour Estate is, is a snapshot of history. There's so much more to this, but the Endeavour Estate has been, has, is now site proposed for more redevelopment, and this redevelopment is the same story, just another time, um, the same story, same history of the site since invasion. People will be removed from these... Um, from these towers with no option, displaced and replaced with other homes and other people. This place is a place of removing peoples from their homes and not creating homes. And there are specific voices that are not heard and specific voices who have all the power still 250 years later. Thank you, Inez. I think that's a really fascinating study there and to know the communal rooms and the, the actual meanings and the, of these places that, uh, that they're named after. It's yeah, amazing to see that. I'm going to call on uh, Jess Herder to please um, step forward. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, why everyone. As Michael mentioned, I'm a Dungari woman. I grew up on Darawal country and I now live and work on Darug land. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on Gadigal country today. Um, and the, the reason that I'm not on Dungari country is because my great-grandmother, who's pictured here, um, is a stolen generation survivor. So she was taken from her home on the mid-north coast of New South Wales to Cootamundra Girls' Home in southwest New South Wales. Um, she was trained as a domestic servant and then she worked as a domestic servant for a doctor here in Sydney and that's how my family have ended up here in Sydney. And so dispossession and displacement certainly has impacted our family's connection to country. Um, and... When I started working in planning in 2017, this was kind of front of mind, the connection between planning and, and dispossession, and stumbled across this quote from um, Aileen Morton Robinson, uh, a Murray woman from Queensland. So um, she says that in Australia, the sense of belonging, home and place enjoyed by the non-Indigenous subject, the coloniser or the migrant, is based on the dispossession of the original owners, uh, the original owners of the land and the denial of our rights under international customary law. It is a sense of belonging derived from ownership as understood within the logic of capital and it mobilises the legend of the pioneer or the battler in its self-legitimisation. Against this stands the Indigenous sense of belonging, home and place in its incommensurable difference. So in 2021, I started working for the Western Parkland City Authority and among many other things that they're working on, um, one of them is delivering the new city centre next to the Western Sydney International Airport that's being built. And the city centre is going to be named after John Bradfield. So I was curious, who is John Bradfield? What did he do? Uh, so December 1867, he was born. And in 1891, he started work for uh, New South Wales Department of Public Works. Um, in 1906, my great-grandmother was born. In 1909, the Aborigines Protection Act was brought in. And at this point in time, one of the main purposes of the act was to enable the displacement of Aboriginal people out of towns, out of cities, into missions and reserves and stations. In 1912, Kudamundra Domestic Training Home for Aboriginal Girls is established, where my grandmother was later sent. 
1913, construction starts on Canberra. Um, and this is important because Bradfield City Centre is often compared to Canberra as being the first city centre to be built in Australia since Canberra. Um, in 1915, there's an important amendment to the Aborigines Protection Act, which enables any Aboriginal child to be taken at any point in time for any reason simply based on their race. And it's after that amendment to the Act that my great-grandmother is taken. In 1924, Bradfield is the first recipient of an engineering doctorate from University of Sydney, of all places, and passes in 1943. The Aborigines Protection Act is not repealed in New South Wales until 1969. So when I think about Aboriginal perspectives of planning and how we were kept out of those decisions. We were kept out of the cities. We were kept out of the towns for all that time that Bradfield was making history. Um, I think of this quote from um, Song of the Crocodile by Nardi Simpson. And although this is a fictional story, it's written by an Aboriginal woman about Aboriginal perspectives. Um, and so the children are in class learning about infrastructure and... Um, there's this thought from an Aboriginal student that for the girls living in the campground, the railways and the roads, the postmaster and the stationmaster, the local member of parliament and the silos, each working party and their endless meetings and constant planning all blurred into a single dreary tale of progress and triumph, the only enemy being the heat or the scrub or the distance or the rain. It was the story of hollow heroes blinded by their own importance. And so I imagine many Aboriginal people would consider Bradfield one of those hollow heroes and that in Western Sydney, we're still trying to overcome the heat and the distance and the rain. Um, so it makes you wonder, this book was set in 1950s, what's changed? But in fact, many things have changed and for the better, in my opinion. So there's a lot more people involved in making sure that First Nations people are considered, their voices are heard, and we have lots of documents now that help guide this work. So we've got the recognised country guidelines for the Eritropolis in Western Sydney um, that help with the planning side of things. The government architects, Dylan Combermary and Dr Danielle Cromrick, have done a lot of work on the Connecting with Country framework, which helps with the design of things. Uh, we've got the Aboriginal procurement policy, making sure that we're procuring from Aboriginal businesses, Aboriginal people are employed, they're participating, they're getting training. The Western Parkland City Authority is one of many organisations that has a reconciliation action plan. We also have land rights, the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act and myself both turned 40 this year. Um, and so Gunungara Local Aboriginal Land Council is the land council responsible for um, the Bradfield City Centre site in terms of it sits within their boundaries and they have a community land and business plan that spells out their aspirations for their land. Um, and then acknowledging that that land rights system that came in in 83, that cultural, that sorry, that statutory authority overlays the cultural authority that the traditional custodians have for that country. And so the Western Parkland City Authority also established the Koori Perspective Circle, which is their local voices, uh, local Aboriginal advisory group, that are made up of different community members. So not just the land rights system, not just traditional custodians, but other people that live in Western Sydney. Uh, so what have I learnt on my journey the last six years across planning? Um, in 2019, when I did my grad cert here in urban and regional planning, I found Arnstein's Ladder of Citizen Participation, which was written in 69, and I couldn't believe that a paper with such amazing ideas was written so long ago, and we were only just kind of catching up in terms of co-design with communities. Um, and it's also interesting that it was written in 69 because that's when the Aboriginal Protection Act was finally repealed. Um, but, you know, we're not just about making sure that people's rights are respected, we're about trying to redistribute power and address that power imbalance that exists. And I acknowledge that the Career Perspective Circle aren't a decision-making body, we're not redistributing that power yet, but we're building the relationships that we can hopefully build on to then have that in the future. Um, and so 
the work becomes about relationships and about resources and then trying to make sure that you're not promising too much um, and that you can do with the resources what you want to do. Um, and so then, what are we doing? I feel like it actually fits the definition of reconciliation. Um, if you look at it, Reconciliation Australia's website, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and non-Indigenous peoples for the benefit of all Australians. Um, Australia's colonial history is characterised by devastating land, dispossession, violence and racism. Over the last half century, however, many significant steps towards reconciliation have been taken. Uh, reconciliation is an ongoing journey that reminds us that while generations of Australians have fought hard for meaningful change, future gains are likely to take just as much, if not more, effort. And so certainly over the next decade or so that the city is built, this is going to be an ongoing journey between the Aboriginal community and the Western Parkland City Authority. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jess. So that was a really fascinating presentation and certainly the context of knowing our family histories and for others to know that as well is very important. I'm going to call, now call on Seth Diaz, please. Um, he's our final guest speaker for today. So, Great. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, my name's Seth. Uh, I'm a recently resumed PhD candidate here at the University of Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. Uh, and before I move on, I'd also just like to acknowledge that uh, we're meeting on Gadigal country today and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to thank all the other speakers uh, for your contributions and to say it's quite an honour to be up here next to you guys. Um, so yeah, my PhD work is focusing on the spatial dimensions of First Nations protest in Sydney and the ramifications of these historical events uh, for urban discourse and how we sort of think about the city in general. So as this audience I think would be well familiar with, there's a long and deeply tragic history of violent dispossession uh, during the colonisation of this country, a process that is ongoing, despite the recent comments of a certain senator from the Northern Territory. Um, but, you know, for as long as this colonial program has pillaged and destroyed this country, there's also been a history of very brave resistance to it from, from that very first day. And I think Stephen's book really goes into that in detail. Uh, from the earliest days of invasion, people have resisted, whether that be Pemulwuy's insurgency or any of the countless acts that we will never know about because of the choices of early colonial historians uh, to not tell those stories. This resistance has continued right up to the modern day, uh, but of course, as colonial society developed and, and progressed, as have the strategies of uh, protest and contention by Indigenous activists. In the mid-20th century, we see the dawn of what is uh, described by many historians as the dawn of the contemporary wave of Indigenous protest. Uh, people might be, may have seen this picture before, but it's from the 1938 Day of Mourning protest in Sydney. Uh, this is viewed by historians as, as the start of the current wave of um, Indigenous protest. And specifically, this is because of uh, the change in protest tactics that this event represents. As the 19th century closed and we moved into the 20th, um, we see across the world, we see civil disobedience uh, change form um, to, and move towards rallies and, and protests as a, a very prominent way to express discontent around a certain issue. Global events such as revolutions and you know protests during the Great Depression really contributed to this. And by the 30s, we really start to see this shift towards protest processions um, as a prominent form of uh, expressing discontent within a social movement. So in 1938, uh, we have a about 100 First Nations people, they, they chose to march through the city from Sydney Town Hall to an unassuming small building on Elizabeth Street called the Australian Hall. And this is where they're standing outside in this picture. You might think 100 people protesting, that's really not that big a deal. But if you consider where Australian society was at at the time, this is the 30s, uh, they were actually doing this on the 26th of January in 1938, which was the 150th anniversary of the Australian colonial project. Uh, and, you know, if you consider that Australia is still grappling with its racist past, you can only imagine what it would have been like for these people to protest in this way in 1938. Uh, my work, it focuses on these protest events because 
through these events, there's one way we can start to see spatial identity developed in the city that specifically represents indigenous or indigeneity um, or, or resistance. This uh, spatial identity, as I'll get into, is long-lasting and it has many ramifications for the way urban space is perceived and, and experienced. Moreover, it has ramifications for how we as you know, experts in the field, um, how we as experts in the field uh, can understand the, the, the development of spatial identity in the inner core or the imperial core of Sydney. So to explain all that using the 1938 example, uh, they ended their march at Australian Hall. As I said, it's, uh, there's nothing really architecturally remarkable about the Australian Hall. And I say that, uh, I recognise I'm saying that to a room full of people who might disagree with me, um, but uh, there's, more importantly, there's never really been anything at Australian Hall to uh, visually represent Indigenous culture. There's no mural or, you know, other design choice or something like that. Regardless of this, the intangible value of the building let the organisers of the cataclysmic 1988 protest demonstration. So 50 years later, we're now at the bicentennial protest, um, which was against the 200th birthday of the colonial project. They chose to stop outside the Australian Hall, uh, have a speech, and then they chose to end their procession immediately across the road um, in South Hyde Park. This was because of the history of what happened there in 1938. They made that explicit choice to honour that, um, that moment in time and chose to stop there. Uh, and that was just thanks to the acts of these, these people. Uh, fast forward to modern times and many of the yearly Invasion Day protests still stop outside the Australian Hall and they have a speech there and they remember and they commemorate the history of that location. Uh, this is what I mean when I explain uh, that there's layered spatial identity in this place, uh, something that is still exists today. So this is 80 years on. That's the Australian Hall in the background. Make up your own mind if you think there's anything remarkable, remarkable about it. And this is Nathan Moran. He's the CEO of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. And he's addressing uh, an Invasion Day protest in 2019, I want to say, maybe 2020. Uh, they all see the Aboriginal Land Council now own and operate in the Australian Hall. And they bought it because of this history, because of what it meant. Uh, it's also now on uh, the State Heritage Registry, again, due to this history. Uh, so that's the first part of what my research uh, examines, how layered spatial identity. So layers built up from these moments in time to create meaning in, in certain locations of the city for Indigenous people. Uh, something that happens through the act of protesting, a phenomena that, while not visible or, or tangible, uh, shows that there's still the ability to develop deep historical value to First Nations people in the inner city, the imperial city. A type of spatial value that I think our field is only just starting to grapple with, this idea of intangible heritage or however you want to describe it. Uh, but secondarily, I'm looking at the way protest processions actually subvert and uh, respond to the existing ideological markers in the city. And in doing so, they contest their natural function. Uh, as has already been covered, I think, by some of the other speakers, the city is littered with these markers of um, colonial ideology. Uh, I sort of argue that the natural meaning of these places is subverted um, and the ideological marker is, is denaturalised. It has this natural function, which is to exp express this symbolic um, ideological perspective, and by protesting near it, um, we can subvert that meaning. So this image here is uh, during a deaths in custody protest outside the Supreme... that chose to end at the Supreme Court of New South Wales. The Supreme Court is embedded in the inner uh, core of the, the colony, you know, right up the road is Parli New South Wales Parliament House, uh, across from the Supreme Court is St James Church, and uh, you also have Hyde Park barracks right there. Um, I think this image just sort of wonderfully shows this idea of subverting the meaning. The courts obviously have this inherent ideological um, symbolism that can then be contested uh, during a protest event. Um, and this creates new meaning for the protest group when they do this. Um, and that can lead to layered spatial identity. This can, however, go both ways. Uh, in more recent times, protests have actually shifted away from colonial markers in the city in certain, um, certain instances. Um, 
So in, uh, and this, this is because of the traumatic memory that could be attached to these ideological markers. So in 2020, uh, Black Lives Matter protests actually shifted out of Hyde Park um, and away from some of these ideological markers like the infamous statue of Captain Cook. Um, and this was because, uh, and I worked closely with some of the protest organisers of those Black Lives Matter protests, and this was because of the inherent trauma that these um, markers were bringing up. There was also, at the same time, a rediscovery of the Gadigal word for the domain, uh, which was Jabugali, so they chose to actually move their protests into Jabugali. Uh, so, yeah, I guess this just shows that, you know, this uh, can go both ways and that uh, Indigenous political actors, they, they were just tired of marching next to the Cook statue while police were there, um, maybe trying to arrest them, chase them. This photo was actually taken by my partner while we were... Yeah, trying to run away from the police who were arresting people at Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I guess this brings me to my closing point. As, you know, as architects, historians, heritage experts, planners, whatever, we have to be constantly be critical of who we, who we are valorising um, through built form and why we are doing that. Uh, the social experiences of First Nation protesters shows that layered spatial identity can be formed in alternate ways within the colonial city, uh, but we should recognise that design choices over whose history is set in stone, has far-reaching implications for the city and how it's read, perceived and experienced. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. That was a really fabulous group of presentations. Thank you so much. Thank you to the audience for really listening um, and participating in that way. And um, so I wanted to really open that up. Nicole here has the microphone and will um, diligently move around the space to um, activate the questions along. So another microphone there. So if there is a question immediately, we will go to the audience. I was just wondering, so I've done, I'm in, I've just finished year 12 and I've done a bit of, like my history extension major work was on counter-memorialisation of Ben Boyd in particular. And I was just wondering, when we look at counter-memorialisation as a practice in the settler landscape, um, how do we mass mobilise that? So how do we kind of get people across Australia and in our you know, local settings and things like that to really get on board and counter-memorialise really? Do you have any suggestions on how we can practically do that? I would suggest maybe... Uh Seth, would you like to have a go at answering that one? Uh, yeah, great question. I mean, such an important uh, topic to look at, uh, and thanks for, for asking that question. I guess to me it's just a matter of, like, the, these memorials and their construction go hand in hand with the idea behind them and that idea gaining popularity. So in the instance, I think you said the memor memorialisation of Pemelway, right? So it's like... Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it, just in general, um, how, how can we make sure that these ideas that need to be known by all of settler society are sent as far and wide as possible? And that's such a difficult thing to actually do. Um, but I think it starts with having events like this where we can actually breathe life into um, this idea of cancer memorialising and, you know, have these conversations and then go away and, you know, talk to others about it. But, yeah. I think providing space for truth telling is really important. In the in the point of Ben Boyd, nobody knows the truth about why the name was to be immortalised. Like it's yeah, there's a there's a story that wasn't told, and I think it's really important that those st stories are told so that people understand why why we want change. I'll just add, um, uh, in my experience, I've I've often been surprised um, that. Not everyone agrees with counter-memorialisation in different situations and circumstances and, air and locations. Um, and I'm not sure about it in general. And sometimes I just want to tear down monuments and throw them in the bin. Sometimes I want to put them in a museum. And at other times I, I increasingly think, um, depending on the situation, but for example, where I've thought that uh, perhaps a, a, a counter-memorialisation process would go on. And I'm thinking of Bathurst. Uh, I don't know if you know Bathurst, but it has um, some pretty serious um, war memorials, about 36 of them, and no Indigenous, no Bathurst war memorials at all, but one statue to George Evans that has an Aboriginal guy um, kneeling below him. And it's like, oh, my God, rip it down. But... Um, the local Wiradjuri community 
don't really care about that. They would rather see some kind of commemorative garden or native garden as as an alternative. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Um, so I guess my point is that I think it's really important to ask community for what type of kind of memorial process or not should go on. So we have a... We'll come back to you. Okay, yeah, sorry. We have, a, we have a question from the lady here. It was sort of a, a follow-up to, to the really great question over here, and it was just to say that um, after the, um, the Charlestown protests where, where they wanted to remove a um, Confederate statue and that, you know, triggered deaths, which was horrible in America, the um, US National Trust, which is the US... I think they call it the Preservation Trust over there, released quite quickly a toolkit for local communities on dealing with these... Um, Confederate statues. I, I suspect they had it in preparation well in advance given how quickly they put it out. But it's a really fantastic toolkit. Um, but one of its main things is they can't have a policy nationwide. It's such a, a personal thing that, that just like you said, starting at community level and, and working locally on each of these because every community is going to respond differently to how they want it dealt with and depending on where they are at their own you know, reconciliation journey as well in that area. Um, thank you for that. Um, what I would just say is that with the case of Ben Boyd, I think that the counter-memorialisation is really interesting because there was a lot of pushback to it and I think that it's very important to consider the methodology of it as well because when you're looking at counter-memorialisation, there's really two approaches where you can either completely tear it down or you can add, say, for instance, in Neutral Bay, I think that they're adding a third counter-memorial <coughs> plaque which contextualises the other two, and that's about sharing that story and saying, yes, you can see the that there is acknowledgement, and tell me if I'm just yabbering on a bit too much, but there's acknowledgement of that existence that he was counter-memorialised... Sorry, he was memorialised, because we don't want to completely erase that because... Um, you want to acknowledge the fact that people were hurt by that memorialisation. Because if we just get rid of it, then it's kind of saying, oh, hey, look, we're, we've never memorialised anyone. We, yeah, we're a happy country. But if we add a you know, counter-memorialisation that contextualises the memorialisation and tells the truth, then I think that that's really important. And that kind of leads me on to just ask, um, with memorialising frontier conflict... It's, I, I was just like, I'd be interested to hear what your kind of perspectives on how that that could e exist in our landscape because obviously we don't want to adhere to colonial and Western standards of memorialisation because that just doesn't apply to Indigenous people. Um, so, yeah, I just, if anyone has thoughts on that, I'd be interested to hear. Well, if I could just quickly <laughs> respond to that. Um, uh there's, there's a huge discussion that could go on about this. Um, thank you. But just a point. I think, firstly, we have to get the Australian War Memorial to respond to these issues first. And then everything can unfold after that. Yeah. I might shift the conversation from the live audience to a question that we received prior to the event. Um, it was a question about how do we ensure Indigenous people design and curate the stories that need to be told from an Indigenous perspective without interference from non-Indigenous stakeholders? I think maybe if there's a... Um, we could go to perhaps Jess um, as a f sort of first um, response and then maybe to you, Inez. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned in my presentation there's the connecting with country framework which I think would really help guide that process um, but yeah definitely making sure that you're providing the space for community to have their say um, in, a, in a safe way where where there isn't that um, interruption from from non-aboriginal people and then I guess it's about upholding the integrity of the process that you've just been through and making sure that it's not interfered with, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's difficult. I mean, uh, it, everything starts with education and conversations and how, but how do you uphold these conversations without um, uh, non-Indigenous um, or settler um, sort of 
interventions or interruptions. And when they have the spaces where people will come and universities and we're in these institutions, right? Um, spaces like this and, and a place with, where we can, well, not me, but where stories can be shared um, are really important. But I think you're right. It's, it's a difficult one to, to think about coming from settler Western institution where my voice is heard, um, but it's still, and Indigenous Peoples Cross Road and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples too, but, um, but you're still uh, quietened sometimes. So I don't know if that's helpful to answer the question, but um, yeah. But we're, you know, we're working on it, chipping away. We've got Indigenous Studies Department at Macquarie and, um, and stuff like that, so. Seth, you're going to Yeah, uh, I mean, I think say? I don't have much to add beyond what you guys have said. Just to say that I think, in general, the way we do community consultation in New South Wales in particular has, has its flaws these days. And I think that um, gets much worse when it's, you know, maybe specifically for Indigenous people. So I think uh, thinking about how we can maybe reform or, or work, in, work on that is a good place to start. The Connecting with Country framework, I think, is a great place to, to really start that conversation. Yeah, hi. Um, I guess I'm coming from a different perspective on that. I'm writing a family history and uh, a lot of my ancestors were colonial ancestors who got some very early land grants in Sydney, so they were clearly displacing the Indigenous people. I want to tell the truth. I want to tell an honest story about how that happened. But, of course, and I was interested in something Stephen said about, you know, new material coming up in archives. That Indigenous voice just isn't there. I mean, it is the record of the invaders. Do you have any advice on how I can do a sort of respectful job of writing my family's history from my perspective, but acknowledging what happened and how it happened? Um, well, just some advice. Um, I, just congratulations or, or, or thank you for actually thinking about that, firstly. Um, that's, a, that's a huge step. Um, I think... You, you, it would be great if you can connect with your local community and ask for, you know, to talk to people about it and you might be surprised. Um, and it's a, it's a shared relationship too because some of the work that I've done, um, finding historical documents and giving them back to community is making a better shared story and, and there's an exchange going on as well sometimes. But being open to that is, is the first step, and the most important step, and I think I congratulate you for that. I read my mind. That's what I was going to advise. <laughs> I, uh, I think, too, it's about um, not just establishing relationships and not just exchange either and thinking about um, sharing stories, yes, and sharing, maybe sharing back the story, but um, also ways that you can reciprocate beyond your, what, what, what you need to find out from... Um, you know, what stories that... And some of these stories might um, involve a lot of trauma and stuff, so um, historical stories. So there's, you know... I'm not trying to put you off and I'm congratulations, like, and I... Um, but it's difficult because I think it's more about establish... I think it, it, perhaps when researching... Um, and I'm a settler. I'm Indigenous, but I'm a settler. Um, researching um, Indigenous... It's about making a relationship before anything else follows after that. And what that can relationship, significant relationship can mean, prior to any kind of information or stories that you might want to find out. I work in. Um, oh, sorry. I work in building conservation, and I recognise the windows um, from a place I've worked on in the Appen region. Might not have been the same place, but um, I guess from a, an architectural point of view, we're focusing on the sort of technical aspects of building conservation and. It never really occurred to me that what the openings were for, but now it all makes sense. Um, it's a little bit like Rottnest Island. Like, you just go there for a nice holiday and you see the layers of actually what's happened after a while. Um, so I guess from an architectural point of view, we want to be able to express the history um, somehow and not necessarily celebrate it all the time because I know with the building in Elizabeth Street, I'm sure there's reasons for celebration and there's also reasons for a sort of commemoration or... So how can, how can we um, teach architects, basically, to 
to understand the layers and move forward? Um, I'm not sure I can answer that question, but I'll try. I mean, I, no, I can't answer that question, how you can teach architects that, but I think there's a huge project in heritage in general that needs to, to reconsider colonial heritage architecture. Just, just This is what I've been doing with historical records, going back to them and rewriting the history of Sydney with a different lens. And I think that needs to be done with colonial architecture and, and all those colonial mansions that we've preserved, state heritage listed, but they all hold, all of them hold other elements, that we, the stories that we haven't been telling. So I don't know how you can do that, but I guess it's about developing you know, faculties and, and, and programs and education in general. I'd say that there's a process of asking first of, yeah, to, so to recognise that there's nuances to the stories that people understand and have connections with and, um, you know, if there, there may be the commentary about, you know, that there's um, direct opposition to a particular uh, item in the landscape or it's something that you want to create a dialogue about. But it's the, the interactions with the stakeholders that can be very compelling and it's like talking to everyone is, is a really important step as part of that process. Not a question so much, but just listening to the conversation, I thought some of you might be interested to have a look at the video which is available online about the creation of the Bachelor Warriors Memorial in Maryborough in Queensland. It was just unveiled in April this year. And the, it's important because it's a memorial to Aboriginal warriors who lost their lives defending their land, but also important because the creation of it, which was led by Aboriginal elder Glenn Miller, was really an important exercise in reconciliation. I actually went to the launch and the range of people who participated in the launch and were there to be part of it from that local community was very, um, very heartwarming. And certainly as a story, it's quite an interesting one to, to look at. I think, uh, thank you so much for all of your excellent talks. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask, since so many of us are sort of researchers or, or planning, you know, in the planning profession and whatnot here, um, I wanted to get your perspectives on how we can best support you in helping to, you know, do all of the various sort of work that you're, you're all doing here. Honestly, having the space to, to vent the frustrations of what the blockages are um, and then having people listen to that and then find ways to communicate that in a, to a broader audience that might be able to help somehow. Yeah, you're doing a fabulous job already. Um, yeah, I really appreciate everything that you guys have done. I think just, um, I just want to say something quickly. From a scholarly perspective, cite Indigenous writers uh, all the time. There's, you know, like, uh, before you think about uh, uh, settler or non-Indigenous thinkers, um, there are usually Indigenous thinkers that are writing about these things that people don't know about, or you have not saying people don't know about that, possibly haven't come across. Cite them, the more you cite, the more other people will see. Students, whoever you're teaching and stuff, can teach, teach Indigenous scholarship, and um, that will go a long way too. I'd quickly add as well that, to, that with um, more and more involvement, as, as Jess had presented in her talk, of these conversations come into the picture, or these topics come into the picture, and that it's not, and uh, I think the role or the um, positions that can be taken is that it doesn't always have to be the Aboriginal person, you know, who's raising these issues. So that really does make a big contribution mm -hmm. if everyone is, is really contributing. We've got a question from Jeff. Yeah, um, Stephen, you mentioned finding out um, on an old map uh, a name that you didn't recognise. And I guess it's those place names that also are important in that memorialisation in terms of what gets recognised and what doesn't. Um, and as people were talking earlier on, I was thinking of sort of travelling around the state and seeing things like Poison Waterhole Creek and other things which clearly have a history that hasn't been told. And I'm just wondering um, to what extent in the memorialisation conversation does actually changing the names or recognising what's behind some of those names become important? Yeah, I think um, they're, they're interlinked, uh, um, aren't they? 
there's a lot of work in dual naming and, and recognition and changing names um, going on that is not necessarily uh, about monuments and statues, but the, the, it's, a similar, it's a similar thing in, in many ways. I also think it's really important to, uh, to listen to the historical archive for Indigenous names that are there. And I, I've been surprised by, for example, Charles Throsby, um, 1810s, you know, he goes to Bathurst, um, and he is told by the Surveyor General to mark down the name and ask people where every day he is as, because he can't survey, right? So they, they, use, they use Aboriginal people's place names as, as a, um, a survey, survey marking point. Um, so that the next person that goes back there can just ask the locals, where is X? And it's a marker point. So there's a surprising <laughs> amount of names and places recorded by that, that early colonial surveying method. And I think um, recognising those in this, that, that place naming mix is important too. I think that brings an end to this discussion, to this event. Um, some amazing food for thought for everyone to take away. Thank you for, for joining us uh, in this discussion. Um, please thank our guest um, presenters. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.